gently stopping the remorseful pilgrim's self-accusations about his past life, Prudence asked him if he had not still with him, and indeed within him, some of the very things that had so destroyed both him and all his past life. Yes, he honestly and humbly said, yes, but greatly against my will, especially my inward and sinful cogitations. At this Prudence looked on him with all her deep and soft eyes, for it was to this that she had been leading the conversation up all the time. Prudence had a great look of satisfaction, mingled with love and pity, at the way the pilgrim said, especially my inward and sinful cogitations. Those who stood by and observed Prudence wondered at her delight in the sad discourse on which the pilgrim now entered. But she had her own reasons for her delight in this particular kind of discourse, and it was seldom that she lighted on a pilgrim who both understood her questions and responded to them as did this man now sitting beside her. Now, my brethren, all parable apart, is that your religious experience? Are you full of shame and detestation at your inward cogitations? Are you tormented, enslaved, and downright cursed with your own evil thoughts? I do not ask whether or no you have such thoughts always within you. I do not ask because I know. But I ask because I would like to make sure that you know what, and the true nature of what, goes on incessantly in your mind and in your heart. Do you, or do you not, spit out your most inward thoughts ten times a day like poison? If you do, you are truly a religious man. And if you do not, yet you do not know the very ABCs of true religion, and your dog has a better errand at the Lord's table than you have. And if your minister lets you sit down at the Lord's table without holding from time to time some particular discourse with you about your sinful thoughts, he is deceiving and misleading you, besides laying up for himself and awakening at last to shame and everlasting contempt. What a millstone his communion roll will be round such a minister's neck, and how his congregation will gnash their teeth at him when they see to what his miserable ministry has brought them. Let a man examine himself, said Paul. What about your inward and sinful cogitations, asked Prudence. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee, demanded the bold prophet. Now, my brethren, what have you to say to that particular accusation? Do you know what vain thoughts are? Are you at all aware what multitudes of such thoughts lodge within you? Do they drive you every day to your knees, and do you blush with shame when you are alone before God at the fountain of folly that fills your mind and your heart continually? The Apostle speaks of vain hopes that make us ashamed that we ever entertained them. You have been often so ashamed, and yet do not such hopes still too easily arise in your heart? What castles of idiotic folly you still build? Were a sane man or a modest woman even to dream such dreams of folly overnight, they would blush and hide their heads all day at the thought. Out of a word, out of a look, out of what was neither a word nor a look intended for you, what a world of vanity will you build out of it? The question of prudence is not whether or no you are still a born fool at heart. She does not put unnecessary questions. Hers to you is the most pertinent and particular question, whether, since you left your former life and became a Christian, you feel every day increasing shame and detestation at yourself on account of the vanity of your inward cogitations. My brethren, can you satisfy her who was set by her master to hold particular discourse with all true Christians before supper? Can you say with the psalmist, could you tell Prudence where the psalmist says, 
I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. And can you silence her by telling her that her master alone knows with what shame you think he has such a fool as you are among his people? Anger also, sudden and even long entertained anger, was one of the many failings of which Christian was so conscious to himself. His outburst of anger at home, he bitterly felt, might well be one of the causes why his wife and children did not accompany him on his pilgrimage. And though he knew his failing in this respect and was very wary of it, yet he often failed even when he was most wary. Now while anger is largely a result of our blood and temperament, yet few of us are so well balanced and equipable in our temperament and so pure and cool in our blood as altogether to escape frequent outbursts of anger. The most happily constituted and the best governed of us have too much cause to be ashamed and penitent before both God and our neighbors for our outbursts of angry passion. But prudence is so particular in her discourse before supper that she goes far deeper into our anger than our wives and our children, our servants and our neighbors can go. She not only asks if we stamp out the rising anger of our heart as we would stamp out sparks of fire in a house full of gunpowder, but she insists on being told what we think of ourselves when the house of our heart is still so full of such fire and such gunpowder. Any man to call a man would be humbled in his own eyes and in his walk before his house at home after an explosion of anger among them. But he who would satisfy prudence and sit beside her at supper must not only never let his anger kindle, but the simple secret heat of it, that fire of hell that is hid from all men but himself in the flint of his own hard and proud heart. What, asked prudence, do you think of that and of yourself on account of that? Does that keep you not only watchful and prayerful, but what is the best ground in you of all true watchfulness and prayerfulness, full of secret shame, self-fear, and self-detestation? One forenoon table would easily hold all our communicants if prudence had the distribution of the tokens. And then we who are true pilgrims are of all men the most miserable on account of that failing, that rankling sting in our hearts when any of our friends has more of this world's possessions, honors, and praises than we have, that pain at our neighbor's pleasure, that sickness at his health, that hunger for what we see him eat, that thirst for what we see him drink, that imprisonment of our spirits when we see him set at liberty, that depression at his exultation, that sorrow at his joy and joy at his sorrow, that evil heart that would have all things to itself. Yes, said Christian, I am only too conversant with all these sinful cogitations, but they are all greatly against my will, and might I but choose mine own thoughts, do you suppose that I would ever think these things any more? The cause is in my will, said Caesar, on a great occasion. But the true Christian unhappily cannot say that. If he could say that, he would soon say also that the snare is broken and that his soul has escaped. And then the cause of all his evil cogitations, his vain thoughts, his angry feelings, his envious feelings, his covetousness, his hell-rooted and heaven-towering pride, and his whole evil heart of unbelief would soon be at an end. I cannot be free of sin, said Thomas Boston, but God knows that he would be welcome to make havoc of my lust tonight and to make me henceforth a holy man. I know no lust that I would not be content to part with. 
my will bound hand and foot, I desire to lay at his feet. Yes, such is the mystery and depth of sin in the hearts of all God's saints, that far deeper than their will, far back behind their will, the whole substance and very core of their hearts is wholly corrupt and enslaved to sin. And thus it is that while their renewed and delivered will works out, so far, their salvation in their walk and conversation among men, the helplessness of their will in the cleansing and the keeping of their hearts is to the end the sorrow and the misery of their sanctification. To will was present with Paul and with Bunyan and with Boston, but their heart they could not with all their keeping keep their heart. No man can, no man who has tried can. Might I but choose mine own thoughts, I would choose never to think of these things more. But when I would be doing of that which is best, that which is worst is with me. We can choose almost all things. Our will and choice have almost all things at their disposal. We can choose our God. We can choose life or death. We can choose heaven or hell. We can choose our church, our minister, our books, our companions, our words, our works, and to some extent our inward thoughts, but only to some extent. We can encourage this or that thought, we can entertain it and dwell upon it, or we can detect, detest, and cast it out. But that secret place in our heart where our thoughts hide and harbor, and out of which they spring so suddenly upon the mind and the heart, the imagination and the conscience, of that secretest of all secret places, God alone is able to say, I search the heart. As for secret thoughts, says our author, speaking of his own former religious life, I took no notice of them, neither did I understand what Satan's temptations were, nor how they were to be withstood and resisted. But now all these things are his deepest grief, as they are ours, as many of us as have been truly turned in our deepest hearts to God. But replied Prudence, do you not find sometimes as if those things were vanquished which at other times are your perplexity? Yes, but that is but seldom, but they are to me golden hours in which such things happen to me. And she said, Can you remember by what means you find your annoyances at times as if they were vanquished? And he replied, Yes, when I think what I saw at the cross, that will do it. And when I look upon my broidered coat, that will do it. Also when I look into the roll that I carry in my bosom, that will do it. And when my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going, that will do it. Yes, and these same things have many a time done it to ourselves also. We also, my brethren, let me tell you your own undeniable experience, we also have such golden hours sometimes when we feel as if we should never again have such an evil heart within us. The cross of Christ to us also has done it. It is of such golden hours that Isaac Watts sings in his noble hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And as often as we sing that hymn with our eyes upon the object, that will for a time vanquish our worst cogitations. Also, when we read the role that we too carry in our bosom, that is to say, when we go back into our past life, till we see it and feel it all, until we can think and speak of nothing else but the sin that abounded in it, and the grace that much more abounded, that has a thousand times given us also golden hours, even rest from our own evil hearts. And we also have often made our hearts too hot for sin to show itself, when we read our hearts deep into such books as, the 
Paradiso, The Pilgrim's Progress, The Saint's Rest, The Serious Call, The Religious Affections, and such like. These books have often vanquished our annoyances and given us golden hours on the earth. Yes, but that is but seldom. Now what is it, asked Prudence, as she wound up this particular questioning, that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Why, replied the pilgrim, and the water stood in his eyes, why there I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross, and there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are an annoyance to me. There, they say, is no death, and there shall I dwell with such company as I love best. For to tell you truth, I love him, because by him I was eased of my burden, and I am weary of my inward sickness, and I would fain beware I shall die no more, and forever with that company that shall continually cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. Chapter 16, page 160 Charity I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. A quote from David. There can be nobody here tonight so stark stupid as to suppose that the pilgrim had run away from home and left his wife and children to the workhouse. There have been wiseacres who have found severe fault with John Bunyan because he made his Puritan pilgrim such a bad husband and such an unnatural father. But nobody possessed of a spark of common sense, not to say religion or literature, would ever commit himself to such an utterly imbecility as that. John Bunyan's pilgrim, whatever he may have been before he became a pilgrim, all the time he was a pilgrim, was the most faithful, affectionate, and solicitous husband in all the country round about, and the tenderest, the most watchful, and the wisest of fathers. This pilgrim stayed all the more at home that he went so far away from home. He accomplished his whole wonderful pilgrimage beside his own forage and at his own fireside, and he entered the celestial city amid trumpets and bells and harps and psalms while all the time sleeping in his own humble bed. The house beautiful, therefore, to which we have now come in his company, is not some remote and romantic mansion away up in the mountains a great many days' journey distant from this poor man's everyday home. The house beautiful was nothing else. What else better, what else so good could it be than just this Christian man's first communion Sabbath and his first communion table? First, that is, after his true conversion from sin to God and his confessed entrance into a new life, while the country from whence he had come out, and concerning which both piety and prudence catechized him so closely, was just his former life of open ungodliness and all his evil walk and conversation while he was as yet living without God and without hope in the world. The country on which he confessed that he now looked back with so much shame and detestation was not England or Bedfordshire, but the wicked life he had lived in that land and in that shire. And when Charity asked him as to whether he was a married man and had a family, she knew quite well that he was, only she made a pretense of asking him those domestic questions in order thereby to start the touching conversation. Beginning then at home, as she always began, Charity said to Christian, Have you a family? Are you a married man? I have a wife and four small children, answered Christian. And why did you not bring them with you? Then Christian wept and said, Oh, how willingly would I have done so! But they were all of them utterly averse to my going on pilgrimage. 
but you should have talked to them and have shown them their danger. So I did, he replied, but I seemed to them as one that mocked. Now this of talking, and especially of talking about religious things to children, is one of the most difficult things in the world, that is, to do it well. Some people have the happy knack of talking to their own and to other people's children so as always to interest and impress them. But such happy people are few. Most people talk at their children whenever they begin to talk to them, and thus without knowing it they nauseate their children with their conversation altogether. To respect a little child, to stand in some awe of a little child, to choose your topics, your opportunities, your neighborhood, your moods and his, as well as all your words, and also to speak your sincerest, simplest, and most straightforward and absolutely wisest, is indispensable with a child. Take your mannerisms, your condescensions, your affectations, your moralizings, and all your insincerities to your debauched equals, but bring your truest and your best to your child. Unless you do so, you will be sure to lay yourself open to a look that will suddenly go through you and that will swiftly convey to you that your child sees through you and despises you in your conversation too. You should not only have talked to your children of their danger, said Charity, but you should have shown them their danger. Yes, Charity, but a man must himself see his own and his children's danger too before he can show it to them as well as see it clearly at the time he is trying to show it to them. And how many fathers do you suppose have the eyes to see such danger? And how then can they show such danger to their children of all people? Once get fathers to see their dangers or anything else aright, and then you will not need to tell them how they are to instruct and impress their children. Nature herself will then tell them how to talk to their children, and when nature teaches, all our children will immediately and unweariedly listen. But especially, said Charity, as your boys grew up, I think you said that you had four boys and no girls? Well then, all the more as they grew up, you should have taken occasion to talk to them about yourself. Did your little boy never petition you for a story about yourself? And as he grew up, did you never confide to him what you have never confided to his mother? something, as I was saying, that made you sad when you were a boy and a rising man, with a sadness your son can still see in you as you talk to him. In conversations like that, a boy finds out what a friend he has in his father, and his father from that day has his best friend in his son. And then as Matthew grew up and began to outgrow his brothers and to form friendships out of doors, did you study to talk at the proper time to him and on subjects on which you never venture to talk about to any other boy or man? You men, Charity went on to say, live in a world of your own, and though we women are well out of it, yet we cannot be wholly ignorant that it is there. And we may well be wrong, but we cannot but think that fathers, if not mothers, might safely tell their men-children at least more than they do tell them of the sure dangers that lie straight in their way of the sorrow that men and women bring on one another, and of what is the destruction of so many cities. We may well be wrong, for we are only women, but I have told you what we all think who keep this house and hear the reports and repentances of pilgrims, both piety and prudence, and I myself. And I for one largely agree with the three women. It is easier said than done. 
But the simple saying of it may perhaps lead some fathers and mothers to think about it and to ask whether or no it is desirable and advisable to do it, which of them is to attempt it, and on what occasion and to what extent. Christian by this time had the sloth of despond with all its history and all that it contained to tell his eldest son about. He had the wicket gate also just above the sloth, the hill difficulty, the interpreter's house, the place somewhat ascending with a cross standing upon it, and a little below in the bottom a sepulchre, not to speak of her who assaulted faithful, whose name was Wanton, and who at one time was like to have done even that trusty pilgrim a long life mischief. Christian rather boasted to Charity of his weariness, especially in the matter of his children's amusements, but Charity seemed to think that he had carried his weariness into other matters besides amusements, without the best possible results there either. I have sometimes thought with her that among our multitude of congresses and conferences, of all kinds of people and upon all manner of subjects, room and membership might have been found for a conference of fathers and mothers, fathers to give and take counsel about how to talk to their sons and mothers to their daughters. I am much of Charity's mind that if more were done at home and done with some frankness for our sons and daughters, there would be fewer fathers and mothers found sitting at the Lord's table alone. You should have talked to them, said Charity, with some severity in her tones, and especially you should have told them of your own sorrow. And then coming still closer up to Christian, Charity asked him whether he prayed, both before and after he so spoke to his children, that God would bless what he said to them. Charity believeth all things, hopeth all things, but when she saw this man about to sit down all alone at the supper table, it took Charity all her might to believe that he had both spoken to his children and at the same time prayed to God for them as he ought to have done. Our old ministers used to lay this vow on all fathers and mothers at the time of baptism, that they were to pray both with and for their children. Now that is a fine formula. It is a most comprehensive and indeed exhaustive formula both with and for, and especially with, with at such and such times, on such and such occasions, and in such and such places. At those times, say when your boy has told a lie, or struck his little brother, or stolen something, or destroyed something. To pray with him at such times, and to pray with him properly, and if you feel able to it, and are led to do it, to tell him something after the prayer about yourself, and your own not yet forgotten boyhood in your father, it makes a fine time to mix talk and prayer together in that way. Charity is not easily provoked, but the longer she lives and keeps the table in the house beautiful, the more she is provoked to think that there is far too little prayer among pilgrims, far too little of all kinds of prayer, but especially prayer with and for their children. But hard as it was to tell all the truth at that moment about Christian's past walk in his house at home, yet he was able with the simple truth to say that he had indeed prayed both with and for his children, and that as they knew and could not but remember, not seldom. Yes, he said, I did sometimes so pray with my boys, and that too, as you may believe, with all affection, for you must think that my four boys were all very dear to me. And it is my firm belief that all that good man's boys will come right yet, Matthew and Joseph and James and Samuel and all. With much affection. I like that. I have unbounded faith in those prayers, both for and with, in which there is much affection.
It is want of affection and want of imagination that shipwrecks so many of our prayers. But this man's prayers had both these elements of sure success in them, and they must come at last to harbor. At that one word, with much affection, this man's closet door flies open, and I see the old pilgrim first alone, and then with his arms round his eldest son's neck, and both father and son weeping together till they are ashamed to appear at supper till they have washed their faces and got their most smiling and everyday looks put on again. You just wait and see if Matthew and all the four boys down to the last do not escape into the celestial city before the gate is shut. And when it is asked, Who are these and whence came they? Listen to their song, and you will hear those four happy children saying that their father, when they were yet boys, both talked with them and prayed for and with them with so much affection that therefore they are before the throne. Why then with such a father and with such makeable boys, why was this household brought so near everlasting shipwreck? It was the mother that did it. In one word, it was the wife and the mother that did it. It was the mistress of the house who wrought the mischief here. She was a poor woman, she was a poor man's wife, and one would have thought that she had little enough temptation to hang upon this present world. But there it was, she did hang upon it as much as if she had been the mother of the finest daughters and the most promising boys in all the town. Things like this were from time to time reported to her by her neighbors. One fine lady had been heard to say that she would never have for her tradesman any man who frequented conventicles, who was not content with the religion of his betters, and who must needs scorn the parish church and do despot to the saints' days. Another gossip asked her what she expected to make of her great family of boys when it was well known that all the gentry in the neighborhood, but two or three, had sworn that they would never have a hulking Puritan to brush their boots or run their errands. And it almost made her husband burn his book and swear that he would never be seen at another prayer meeting when his wife so often said to him that he should never have had children, that he should never have made her his wife, and that he was not like this when they were first man and wife. And in her bitterness she would name this wife or that maid and would say, You should have married her. She would have gone to the meeting house with you as often as you wished. Her sons are fair enough for good service to please you. My wife, he softly said, was afraid of losing the world. And then after that my growing sons were soon given over, all I could do, to the foolish delights of youth, so that what by one thing and what by another, they left me to wander in this manner alone. And I suppose there is scarcely a household among ourselves where there have not been serious and damaging misunderstandings between old-fashioned fathers and their young people about what the old people call the foolish delights of their sons and daughters. And in thinking this matter over, I have often been struck with how Job did when his sons and his daughters were bent upon feasting and dancing in their eldest brother's house. The old man did not lay a prohibition upon the entertainment. He did not take part in it, but neither did he absolutely forbid it. If it must be, it must be, said the wise patriarch. And since I do not know whom they may meet there, or what they may be tempted to do, I will sanctify them all. I will not go up into my bed till I have prayed for all my seven sons and three daughters, each one of them by their names. Until they come home safely, I will rise every morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 
And do you think that those burnt offerings and accompanying intercessions would go for nothing when the great wind came from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the banqueting house? If you cannot banish the love of foolish delights out of the hearts of your sons and daughters, then do not quarrel with them over such things. A family quarrel in a Christian man's house is surely far worse than a feast or a dance. Only if they must feast and dance and such like, be you all the more diligent in your exercises at home on their behalf till they are back again, where after all they like best to be in their good, kind, liberal, and loving father's house. Have you a family? Are you a married man? Or if not, do you hope one day to be? Then attend the times to what Charity says to Christian in the house beautiful, and not less to what he says back again to her. Chapter 17, page 170 Shame Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. A quote from our Lord. Shame has not got the attention that it deserves either from our moral philosophers or from our practical and experimental divines. And yet it would well repay both classes of students to attend far more to shame. For what really is shame? Shame is an original instinct planted in our souls by our Maker and intended by him to act as a powerful and pungent check to our doing of any act that is mean or dishonorable in the eyes of our fellow men. Shame is a kind of social conscience. Shame is a secondary sense of sin. In shame, our imagination becomes a kind of moral sense. Shame sets up in our bosom a not undivine tribunal which judges us and sentences us in the absence or the silence of nobler and more awful sanctions and sentences. But then as things now are with us, like all the rest of the machinery of the soul, shame has gone sadly astray both in its objects and in its operations, till it demands a long, a severe, and a very noble discipline over himself before any man can keep shame in its proper place and direct it in upon its proper objects. In the present disorder of our souls, we are all acutely ashamed of many things that are not the proper objects of shame at all. While, on the other hand, we feel no shame at all at multitudes of things that are really most blameworthy, dishonorable, and contemptible. We are ashamed of things in our lot and in our circumstances that, if we only knew it, are our opportunity and our honor. We are ashamed of things that are the clear will and the immediate dispensation of Almighty God. And then we feel no shame at all at the most dishonorable things and that simply because the men around us are too coarse in their morals and too dull in their sensibilities to see any shame in such things. And thus it comes about that in the very best of men their still perverted sense of shame remains in them a constant snare and a source of temptation. A man of a fine nature feels keenly the temptation to shrink from those paths of truth and duty that expose him to the cruel judgments and the coarse and scandalizing attacks of public and private enemies. It was in the valley of humiliation that shame set upon faithful, and it is a real humiliation to any man of anything of this pilgrim's fine character and feeling to be attacked, scoffed at, and held up to blame and approbation. And the finer and the more affectionate any man's heart and character are, the more he feels and shrinks from the coarse treatment this world gives to those 
whom it has its own reasons to hate and assail. They have the stocks in the pillory and the shears in Bunyan's rude and uncivilized day, by means of which many of the best men of that day were exposed to the insults and brutalities of the mob. The newspapers would be the pillory of our day, were it not that, on the whole, the newspaper press is conducted with such scrupulous fairness and with a love of truth and justice such that no man need shrink from the path of duty through fear of insult and injury. But it is time to come to the encounter between shame and faithful in the valley of humiliation. Shame, properly speaking, is not one of our Bunyan gallery of portraits at all. Shame at best is but a kind of secondary character in this dramatic book. We do not meet with shame directly. We only hear about him through the report of faithful. That first-class pilgrim was almost overcome of shame, so hot was their encounter, and it is the extraordinary feeling, graphic and realistic account of their encounter, that faithful gives us that has led me to take up shame for our reproof and correction tonight. Religion altogether, but especially all personal religion, said shame to faithful, is an unmanly business. There is a certain touch of smallness and pitifulness, he said, in all religion, but especially in experimental religion. It brings a man into junctures and into companionships, and it puts offices and endurances upon one, such as try a man if he has any greatness of spirit about him at all. This life on which you are entering, said shame, will cost you many a blush before you are done with it. You will lay yourself open to many a scoff. The Puritan religion and all the ways of that religious fraternity are particularly open to the shafts of ridicule. Now all that was quite true. There was no denying the truth of what shame said. And Faithful felt the truth of it all, and felt it most keenly, as he confessed to Christian. The blood came into my face, as the fellow spake, and what he said for a time almost beat me out of the upward way altogether. But in this dilemma also of all true Christians can fall back, as Faithful fell back, upon the example of their master. In this, as in every other experience of temptation and endurance, our Lord is the forerunner and the example of his people. Our Lord was in all points tempted like as we are, and among all his other temptations, he was tempted to be ashamed of his work on earth, and of the life and the death his work led him into. We must have often felt ashamed at the treatment he received during his life of humiliation, as it is well called. And he must often have felt ashamed of his disciples. But all that is blotted out by the crowning shame of the cross, we hang our worst criminals rather than behead or shoot them in order to heap up the utmost possible shame and disgrace upon them as well as to execute justice upon them. And what the hangman's rope is in our day, all that the cross was in our Lord's day. And then, as if the cross itself was not shame enough, all the circumstances connected with his cross were planned and carried out so as to heap the utmost possible shame and humiliation upon his head. Our prison warders have to watch the murderers in their cells night and day, lest they should take their own life in order to escape the hangman's rope. But our Lord, keenly as he felt his coming shame, said to his horrified disciples, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, when the Son of Man shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death. Do you ever think of our Lord in his shame? how they made a fool of him, as we say, 
how they took off his own clothes and put on him now a red cloak and now a white, how they put a sword of lath in his hand and a crown of thorns on his head, how they bowed the knee before him and asked royal favors from him, and then how they spat in his face and struck him on the cheek while the whole house rang with shouts of laughter. And then the last indignity of man, how they stripped him naked and lashed his naked and bleeding body to a whipping post, and how they wagged their heads and put out their tongues at him when he was on the tree, and invited him to come down and preach to them now, and that they would all become his disciples. Did not shame say the simple truth when he warned faithful that religion had always, and from the beginning, made its followers the ridicule of their times? If you are really going to be a religious man, Shame went on, you will have to carry about with you a very tender conscience and a more unmanly and miserable thing than a tender conscience I cannot conceive. A tender conscience will cost you something, let me tell you, to keep it. If nothing else, a tender conscience will all your life long expose you to the mockery and the contempt of all the brave spirits of the time. That also is true. At any rate, a tender conscience will undoubtedly compel its possessor to face the brave spirits of the time. There is a good story told to this present point about Sir Robert Peel, a Prime Minister of our Queen. When a young man, Peel was one of the guests at a select dinner party in the West End of London. And after the ladies had left the table, the conversation of the gentlemen took a turn such that it could not have taken as long as the ladies were present. Peel took no share in the stories or the merriment that went on, and at last he rose up and ordered his carriage, and with a burning face left the room. When he was challenged as to why he had broken up the pleasant party so soon, he could only reply that his conscience would not let him stay any longer. No doubt Peel felt the mocking laughter that he left behind him, but as shame said to Faithful, the tenderness of the young statesman's conscience compelled him to do as he did. But we are not all Peels, and there are plenty of workshops and offices and dinner tables in our own city where young men who would walk up to the cannon's mouth without flinching have not had Peel's courage to protest against indecency or to confess that they belong to an evangelical church. If a church is only sufficiently unevangelical, there is no trial of conscience or of courage in confessing that you belong to it. But as shame so ably and honestly said, that type of religion that creates a tender conscience in its followers and sets them to watch their words and their ways and makes them tie themselves up from all hectoring liberty, to choose that religion and to cleave to it to the end will make a young man the ridicule still of all the brave spirits round about him. Ambitious young men get promotion and reward every day among us for desertions and apostasies in religion, for which... If they had been guilty of the like in war, they would have been shot. And so you are a free churchman, I am told. That was all that was said, but the sharp youth understood without any more words, and he made his choice accordingly, till it is becoming a positive surprise to find the rising members of certain professions in certain churches. The Quakers have a proverb in England that a family carriage never drives for two generations past the parish church door. Of which state of matters, Shames showed himself a shrewd prophet two hundred years ago when he said that but few of the rich and the mighty and the wise remained long of faithful Puritan opinion 
unless they were first persuaded to be fools and to be of a voluntary fondness to venture the loss of all. And I will tell you two other things, said sharp-sighted and plain-spoken shame, that your present religion will compel you to do if you adhere to it. It will compel you from time to time to ask your neighbor's forgiveness, even for petty faults. And it will insist with you that you make restitution when you have done the weak and the friendless any hurt or any wrong. And every manly mind will tell you that life is not worth having on such humbling terms as those are. Whatever may be thought about shame in other respects, it cannot be denied that he had a sharp eye for the facts of life and a shrewd tongue in setting those facts forth. He has hit the blot exactly in the matter of our first duty to our neighbor. He has put his finger on one of the matters where so many of us, through a false shame, come short. It costs us a tremendous struggle with our pride to go to our neighbor and to ask his forgiveness for a fault, petty fault or other. Did you ever do it? When did you do it last? To whom and for what? One Sabbath morning now many years ago, I had occasion to urge this elementary evangelical duty on my people here, and I did it as plainly as I could. Next day, one of my young men, who is now a devoted and honored elder, came to me and told me that he had done that morning what his conscience yesterday told him in the church to do. He had gone to a neighbor's place of business, had asked for an interview, and had begged his neighbor's pardon. I am sure neither of these two men have forgotten that moment, and the thought of it has often since nerved me to speak plainly about some of their most unwelcome duties to my people. Shame, no doubt, pulled back my noble friend's hand when it was on the office bell, but like faithful in the text, he shook him out of his company and went in. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, 
they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.